0: The Health Mastery Cafe is recorded live and then produced by DMMD Studios in Chicago.
1: April is autism awareness month and here on the Health Mastery Cafe today we're going to be talking about everything you need to know about autism with board certified pediatrician Dr. Allison Foster.
0: Next on the Health Mastery Cafe, Rethinking What's at Stake: Rebranding Health. Huh, because I'm happy.
1: health mastery cafe we've got a special show for you today we're talking about autism april is autism awareness month in america and we're going to be talking about autism today with one of our very favorite guests on the show you guys remember dr allison foster who is a board certified pediatrician in the chicagoland area uh if if you remember our talk on childhood obesity there's a very very popular show if you have not heard it you want to go back to the site, find the Obesity, the Childhood Obesity uh, uh, podcast, and listen to it in its entirety. She gave us a lot of great pointers about how we can prevent our kids from being obese, and it's a really important topic. Uh, no less important is this a topic of autism. Dr. Allison Foster, thanks for joining us again here on the Health Mastery Cafe.
2: Well, thanks, Doctor Dave. Great being with you again, and I'm looking forward to our discussion today.
1: Yeah, you know, you know, the thing that got me um, was this recent news about the increase in the incidence of autism. So, the news is saying that one out of 68 kids will is estimated to to be diagnosed at some point with autism or some, some, some part of the autism spectrum, that's about one and a half percent of kids. Now, was that surprising to you, or is, is this pretty much what you expected?
2: Well, you know, I, I think those numbers really surprised all of us, and, and really those numbers just came out a couple of weeks ago when the CDC released them, so they were definitely surprising to us all, but, you know, as a pediatrician, this is really something that I'm confronted with on a daily basis. Wow. I see these numbers, you know, in the office in real practice. Um, it's definitely something that we see more often in boys, but it's a topic that comes up on a daily basis for me, and it's something that parents are already, you know, uh, in tune with and concerned about, and they come into the office with questions about
1: this. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're actually seeing it, and I want to get into that at some point uh, uh, b- before we finish our conversation, kind of some of the things that you get from the parents and that you see Um, in the kids in your office. But the the other thing about the statistics was just in a two-year period, there seemed to have been a 30% increase in autism. Now, that sounds a bit off to me. 30% increase in autism, is it that we're just recognizing it more? What's happening here?
2: Well, you know, I think there are a lot of factors that go into that. I mean, really, if you look back over, you know, sort of the past, Forty years or so, there's really been a tenfold increase in the number of American kids that have been di- diagnosed with autism. But a couple of things have happened in the past couple of years. In May of 2013, there was a big change in the way that the DSM-5 now uh, defines autism. Prior to 2013, um, there were many subtypes of autism. So you had things like, you know, Asperger's syndrome. You had Uh, pervasive developmental disorder, otherwise known as PDD. You had autistic disorder. So a lot of the different disorders within autism were sort of um, singled out. But since 2013, there's just one large grouping that's considered autism spectrum disorders. So you definitely have more Um, children and you know adults who are now grouped under that umbrella term
1: oh so that so that makes a little bit more sense so so now the new diagnostic criteria have changed and we're lumping a bunch of you know more more kids together that were that had their own separate diagnoses and so that's part of the reason but are we are we more aware now or are are, are some of the um advocacy uh, um attempts and things working is that what's happening too
2: you know I think that's definitely part of it I think the answer is there's no one one thing that we can look at and say this is the reason for this huge increase over the recent years and that's one of the reasons why it's so important that we have a lot of you know advocacy efforts and research um, dollars spent in this arena just so that we can find out what exactly is to you know account for this huge increase we know that Uh, Definitely as clinicians, um, you know, physicians are much better nowadays at diagnosing autism spectrum disorders. We are also very good now at picking up early signs of uh, developmental differences in in children. And, you know, along those lines, parents are definitely... more aware of what does not seem quite right in their child from a very early age as young as sometimes six months of age
1: yeah yeah so 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 it's really good too because that means that 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 the parents are bringing the kids with these certain questions because obviously they're going to be the first to, to pick up on these things they're bringing them to attention of the pediatrician or other healthcare providers uh a little bit earlier Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, let's kind of dig into it a little bit, so we can, uh, uh, so I can understand a little bit more, and then and then our listeners can understand what autism is. Do we do we really know what it is? What is autism?
2: Well, I mean, we know that autism, or you know, as, as we should refer to it, autism spectrum disorders, are general terms for a group of very complex disorders of brain development, and these. Disorders of brain development are characterized in varying degrees, you know, by things that affect social interaction in children, communication, both verbal and nonverbal, as well as repetitive behaviors that are oftentimes seen in, in children who are diagnosed on the spectrum.
1: Yeah, and, 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 you know, I think some some of the repetitive behaviors become some of the things that, in general, people um, can recognize as a, as a sign or symptom of the autism spectrum, as you said, but you're you're talking about social interaction problems. So tell tell us more about that social interaction. What does that mean?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it, when you look at older children or adults with autism, or you know, or adults or children who are on the autism spectrum, you certainly can see that um, some of them can display very severe difficulties in interacting socially. Um, but even before they reach an older age infants will start to show signs that they may have degrees of difficulty in social interaction and one of the first signs could be that your you know 2 or 3 month old has not yet begun to smile reciprocally so you don't get what we refer to as a social smile okay. which is that big warm joyful smile that your child may do in response to seeing your face or hearing your voice
1: right okay so so two months is the period so if your child is if the if the infant is younger than two months we're not really expecting them to have that kind of reciprocal smile as you're calling it no we're
2: we're not expecting that you know certainly before that time period before two months of age You know, parents will often see that their infant will smile. A lot of those smiles are during sleep or during, you know, periods of... um,
1: uh, Like gas and having GI (laughs) digestive functions here.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. But, you know, it's not the classic social smile that we're seeing that's meaningful and in response to the infant's environment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: So tell us um, – okay, so social interaction. So that's really important, and you kind of talked about that. So we talked about infants. Tell us about the older uh, kids, what, what the social interactions you're talking about with parents, with siblings, with, with other kids.
2: Yeah, well, certainly. You know, with the, with the older kids, and if we're going to define older as sort of the toddler period, so from the age one to around, you know, three years of age – what we're really looking for is for that child to interact uh, within its environment um, meaningfully with other people. So that might mean that the child has a reciprocal uh, back-and-forth approach with a caregiver. You know, oftentimes toddlers between 12 months all the way up to two years of age constantly bring things back to their caregiver that they want to interact um, together with. Ah. So they may bring a book. And place it on the lap of a parent uh, so that the parent reads the book. They may point to something, uh, such as a sippy cup that's on the table, because they want the parent to pick up the sippy cup and give it to them. Right. So, you know, they are regarding other people in their environment in a in a joint fashion, and we really call that behavior joint attention.
3: Joint attention. Attention. That's, attention. that's
2: okay. a buzzword. Yeah, that's certainly a, a developmental buzzword that uh, pediatricians. Are looking for displays of joint attention during the early toddler period um, to to ensure that we are developing appropriately.
1: Yeah, yeah. So tell us now about the communication, and then and then get, it, it, you know span the gap again because communication as a, you know before the age of one mm. seems like it might be difficult to assess.
2: Well, it, it may seem that way, but really, it really it isn't. It's you know we're just getting to sort of simple basic things. So. Prior to the age of one, you know, we we do not expect an infant to have clearly defined words. You know, right. that's yeah. not what we what we're looking for. It's, it's
1: not like the Family Guy TV where, uh, where where the little kid is like using <laughs> <laughs> big thesaurus type words. Yeah, okay.
2: Right, not quite. But it's more so um, seeing that the the uh, older infant is beginning to pick up on conversational style. So. You you know, the uh, nine-month-old may begin babbling sort of in uh, a ba-ba-da-da fashion or even screaming or squealing, but they're doing it while regarding um, another person in the room. So they may babble looking at a parent and then pause and smile, and then the parent goes, goo-goo-ga-ga back, Mm -hmm. and then the infant reciprocally smiles and responds.
1: So if if you don't uh, see that by... A certain age, then you start to be concerned about autism spectrum disorders.
2: Well, you start to be concerned about a developmental uh, uh, delay. Or so, yeah. It, yeah, so it may not be, you know, everything that is a developmental delay is certainly not an autism spectrum disorder, but it's it's something that deserves. Further attention and follow
1: up, right? So, and so, I think
2: that's really the key with with any developmental delay. It does not mean that the child will be on the spectrum, but it certainly means that the pediatrician needs to, you know, stay in close contact with the family to make sure that we do catch up with our development.
1: Yeah, and to and to be aware of it. So we're we're not trying to get people hyper, you know, sensitive or or or. Um, uh, you know, to think that any one small thing by itself in isolation equals an autistic spectrum, but it's something to keep an eye on and to really be in conversation with your pediatrician. The so then, so then, tell us about the third, because it sounds like there are three big things. We hit on social interaction. We hit on communication. And, and then those repetitive behaviors, or what we call stereotyped uh, behaviors, tell us some of those things.
2: Well, you know, the, the repetitive behaviors, they vary, of course, because we are talking about a spectrum of, of uh, disorders. So the repetitive behaviors that we see um, in autism spectrum disorders vary, Um you may see that some children who are on the spectrum have very stereotype movements where they may have, for instance, their finger very close to their face and they are waving it in a certain fashion over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. They may uh, flap their hands um, or they may wring their hands when they become upset, um, and they do that persistently. So it's really a combination of stereotype behaviors with persistence. That is um, a difficult thing to sometimes assess in an otherwise typically developing toddler because, as we all know, especially if you have any experience with toddlers, they do a lot of unusual movements um, as they are getting to know their body and their limits. Uh, so some activities that they do or behaviors or st- what even may appear to be stereotype movements could be normal. Yeah. But... In this day and age, it's very easy. Most of us have cell phones or some way to video record um, events, and that's something that you can easily, you know, snap a quick video of and bring it into your pediatrician. Oh, that's data.
1: a great. That's a great point. So, so you know, I mean. It, it, one of the points that you're making, I guess, up to this point is, if you've got questions, really, you should be having discussion with your pediatrician. You really should absolutely. be, you know, in anything that bothers you, don't try to make a diagnosis and and, and, and you know, give your kid a diagnosis. Have a conversation with your doctor, but that was a great tip. Video some of these things. Yeah, Bring no, in a absolutely. number of videos.
2: And, and I think a lot, you know, the autism spectrum uh, disorders, this, this is a topic that, um, a lot of parents have a, a lot of, um, of fear regarding, you know, they they want to, of course, make sure that their child is developing well, but sometimes they minimize concerns that they may have or things that they feel may not be quite right um, about the development of their child. So this is why it's really important that just in general, people have a great relationship with their pediatrician. You want to be with with, um, with someone that you know will take your concerns um, seriously and will not try to minimize them if you have um, a certain concern about something with your child.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's great. Um, let's take a quick break uh, and, and then let's come back because I want to talk about some of the other things that uh, might be signs or, or manifestations of an autism spectrum and some of the things, for example, that get uh, sensationalized when we come back on the Health Mastery Cafe. Gently down the stream, merrily, 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 merrily.
0: Don't go away. We'll be right back. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at DMontgomeryMD. Rethink your health. Stay informed. At DMontgomeryMD on Facebook and Twitter.
4: Reach your target market with advertising on the show. Email us at info at Dave MD.com. Promote your company, product, or service. Email info at Dave Montgomery md.com. Type advertised in the subject line.
1: We're back on the Health Mastery Cafe. I'm talking with Dr. Allison Foster, a board-certified pediatrician, and one of our contributors here on the Health Mastery Cafe. We're talking about autism. April is Autism Awareness Month, and we're talking about really kind of getting into what autism is so that we can all have a better understanding of what it is. And if we need to go and talk to our pediatricians or other specialists about our children or children in our family, uh, then then we know what to go with. We know that we're armed with the right information and the right questions to ask. So, you know, where we left off before the uh, break, Dr. Foster, was Um, wanting to kind of talk about some of the um, manifestations that probably are rare in in the autism spectrum that get sort of, uh, you know, more attention than others. For example, these unusual abilities, memory uh, abilities, um, you know, math, you know, mathematic kind of unusual abilities. Can you comment on that at all?
2: Oh, certainly. You know, I I think that a lot of those sort of unusual abilities or the the feeling that... um, if you are on the autism spectrum disorder, then you are at the level of a savant in certain areas, you know, regarding the arts and and um, and math and science. That's just not quite the case, you know, and it, certainly um, each individual on the autism spectrum is very unique and has different abilities um, from another person who's on the spectrum. But we do know that, you know, about 40% of uh, people who are on the autism spectrum have average to above-average intelligence. We know that... Um, how, how many percent? You said 40. 40%,
1: 40%. have average or above-average. Okay.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, keep in, keep in mind, it's such a, such a wide range. There are not, no two individuals with autism who are alike. So, you know, you have 40% who have average or above-average intelligence and then you can have others who have significant disability and are unable to live independently. But certainly yeah.
3: many many
2: individuals on the autism spectrum have an intense focus in a certain area, and that may be um, that they are very much into counting or in, uh, interested in numbers or cars, and they really spend a lot of time learning all that there is to know about cars, for example. So they... Can appear to master it, but if you were to uh, explore other areas and other topics, they may not have quite as, as much information on it. So it's more related to the fact that they are intensely focused in one area or one subject, not necessarily that they are <clears throat> all gifted savants
1: yeah. Um, yeah.
2: that excel in math and science and arts.
1: And it, you know, it sort of sounds like this is a um, sort of an offshoot of part of the mechanism right so you know and we'll talk about what we think is causing it in a second but you know some of the other things that they do with, with these repetitive motions or or um stereotype sort of activities or behaviors is for example lining things up you know lining their toys up in a straight line or um you know you know sort of having um you know, this this focus, laser-like focus on a particular food on a particular song or a toy or something like that, this might all be a part of that same thing especially if they hone in, for example, on numbers and then really be uh, very gifted and, and have these unusual abilities with numbers
2: Oh, yes, absolutely and, and this is also something that can then be used in their favor in terms of um, uh, div- uh, behavioral therapy um, you know for instance, certain certain kids who are um, on the autism spectrum may really excel at, uh, for instance, um, playing the piano, yeah. and that's something that can then be used um, in terms of helping them along with their therapy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's uh, and, and that's some of the stuff that we're, we're going to talk about. I definitely want to talk about how can we treat this? How can we manage it? Is it is it uh, is it curable, some of those things uh, later in the show um, let 's talk about what causes it. There's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of myths, but we know what what we know essentially. I mean you know there there are a few things that we know about the cause of autism or the autism spectrum. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, you know, I think that we know uh, very well. Certain things that do not cause autism. Okay. Um, But there is still so much more research to be done in terms of really figuring out what is causing autism and what is causing this increase in numbers of diagnoses each year. We definitely know that there is no link between autism and vaccines.
1: Ah, say that again. I mean, that's really important because uh, you know, and and I would love for you to come back and we could just kind of talk about vaccines because it's really important but but tell us that again and 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 give us a little explore that a little bit because i think some people really are um honing in on this idea that a vaccine can cause autism
2: yeah i mean so vaccines um in the past have been um uh, implicated in and potentially causing autism symptoms and this really is something that stemmed from a lot of misinformation, um, now more than 20 years ago, and it stemmed from a um, published report that was in a very well-respected scientific journal that was later retracted and debunked and, and totally disproven um, over the, the uh, succeeding years. Yeah. And there have been many multiple large study trials um, that have, you know, continued to disprove Uh, that original paper and any other uh, potential link to a vaccine or a component of a vaccine.
1: Parents, get your children vaccinated. According to the recommendations of your pediatrician, vaccines do not cause autism, period. That's it. I mean, you know, let's stop this nonsense and let's not have our kids developing measles and and, and having, you know, these ancient conditions that we know how to, to prevent people from having because of the scare of autism that, as Dr. Foster has said, has been debunked for years and years and years. Okay, so um, let's get down to a little bit of science. You know, we like to talk a little bit about the science and bring everybody up to speed about what we know. What's going on in the brain of a person, a child, with autism? It seems like, from what I've understood that this process is happening as early as conception. That is, the the, the neural development that seems to be abnormal, because, you know, after all, it really is a disorder of neural development, right? What What do we know about that?
2: Well, we know that there's not just one cause of autism. So, you know, certainly we know that over the last five years or so, there have been um, there's been a lot of research that has shown that there are uh, some rare gene changes that are associated with autism and it appears that for some of these very rare gene changes um, that sometimes those changes are sufficient enough to to um, cause autism alone but again that's very rare in most cases there appear to be um, a combination of what are considered to be autism risk genes uh-huh. and environmental factors that influence early
1: brain development. Okay, so it's it's a combination for, at the you know, to the best of our knowledge at this point, combination between something happening genetically and some other exposures. What are the what are these environmental exposures you're talking about?
2: The environmental exposures that we seem to be finding more information about have to do with um, things related to maternal illness during pregnancy. Um, certainly, we know that so So, mat- maternal disease. illness,
1: you mean a cold, uh, you know, uh, diarrhea? What are, what are we saying?
2: Well, um, maybe the flu. So, a flu infection um, okay. in in the mother while she's pregnant. Um Another potential reason for the increase in in the number of uh, diagnoses of autism in America um, appears to be related also to increased parental age at the time of conception. And definitely over the past several several years, we've seen an increase in um, the use of assisted reproductive abilities, so IVF, um, for older older, uh, parents. And that definitely could be a reason for the increased numbers that we're seeing.
1: Yeah. So, and it's important for us to to, to let people. You said increased parental age means dad and mom, dad not and just mom. mom. Yeah, exactly. Really important. Not
2: increased maternal age, increased parental age. So, so both dad and mom.
1: So, when you are, um, you know, when you when you see a, a child in your office with autism. And you go back through some of these risk factors. Can you pluck out some of them and say, okay, yeah, so it makes sense now. You had increased, you know, paternal age. You've had IVF. You've, had, you know, can you can you so, do you often see some of those?
2: You know, honestly, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you,
1: so at the end of the day, are, these are these are what we are. Uh, um, these are so all so sort basic. of hypotheses.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. These are hypotheses. Strong, very strong hypotheses that are are being. Um, you know uh verified Validated. more and more yeah, yeah. but um this just really goes to show that although there are associations that appear to be grouped together there is no one distinct cause yeah so pinpoint, so we haven't we haven't identified this happens, third child will have
1: autism right yeah we haven't we haven't identified that single point of convergence there probably is one right there probably is one You know, you know one one thing that all of these uh, sort of converge on. We just haven't uncovered it, right? I mean, we haven't
2: uncovered it, right? But but I do think that I mean, definitely, um, the genetic component is the strongest component. Yeah. Uh, You know, we talked about the one in sixty eight American kids diagnosed with autism, but one in forty two boys are diagnosed with autism versus one in one hundred and eighty nine girls. So. Uh that alone lets you know that there there is a strong genetic component. If you have a twin, if you're looking at identical twins, if one twin is diagnosed with autism, the other twin has a 90% risk of autism. Wow,
1: 90. 90.
2: 90, 90% risk and we're talking about identical twins, not fraternal twin
1: twins. Right. So and 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 then just siblings the evidence, though. You were saying also siblings, right? You know, one sibling we're not talking no. about twins. You could just yes. be siblings. Yeah, yeah.
2: Oh, yes. If, if parents have a child with, um, with a diagnosis of autism, there's a, a, a greatly increased risk of a subsequent child being diagnosed with autism.
1: Further, further sort of adding evidence to the fact that this is a genetic first disorder or something, so or some sort of disorder Um, by which the mechanism affects the genes, right? So, you know, what what scientists now call epigenetics, really, not the genes themselves, but the way that the body actually manipulates and, and makes the genes function. So it's really important for us to know it's a genetic component, but is it inherited from mom and dad? So when you see autistic kids, are you looking at mom, dad, or maybe skip a generation and looking at grandma and granddad to see if they have autism?
2: You know we're certainly sitting down and and just you know talking about family members, you know uh, immediate as well as distant, who may have unusual behaviors or you know you may um, you may find that sure as um, you know Uncle Bob um, wasn't really able to live on his own and and stayed with grandma and um, was really into his stamp collection, you know, so maybe when Uncle Bob was younger he was never diagnosed with autism, but you can um, you know sort of assume that he was he falls somewhere on the spectrum yeah. and we certainly know that there's there are regions within the united states where there are larger numbers of people on the spectrum silicon valley is a is an area where there are really really high numbers of people on the spectrum wow is that, so that right would, wow that would make sense then that you know if you have a, a region where um, yeah, people marry and have kids and sure. and um, you're, you're furthering um, the propagation of those genes within that, that population you'll see more numbers right. of, of people on the spectrum
1: when we come back from a very short break I want to kind of now start to um, talk about is there any hope can we actually um, intervene on autism when we come back on the health master Cafe.
0: don't go away we'll be right back
4: The information you seek, the inspiration you need.
1: Let's explore that inspiration here on the Health Mastery Cafe.
4: Tune in to the Health Mastery Cafe with Dr. Dave, Tuesdays at 12 p.m. on UBM Talk.
1: Nothing like this has ever been done before.
4: The Health Mastery Cafe.
1: Oh, okay. okay, but but it's, it's it's so so it's it's been reported that Bill Gates has a uh, diagnosis of Asperger's. that I'm the one with Asperger, that's you really
3: characteristics. Yeah,
1: ability. so but but Asperger's is a part on the spectrum where you don't have some of the communication problems and the social interaction problems is that right oh uh,
2: no, no well they they still do to a certain degree because really you have to have both to have that you know diagnosis but oh right, 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 right very very highly functioning and and have you know normal to above average intelligence so they're part of that 40 percent um, um, but they you know they were previously before it was all lumped together under an umbrella term they were that was the best diagnosis to get yeah. You know, as- Asperger's. Uh-huh. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. So we're back on the Health Mastery Cafe. I'm chatting with uh, Dr. Allison Foster, who is one of our special, uh, one of our favorite guests here on the Health Mastery Cafe. She's a board certified pediatrician in Chicago, and we're exploring autism on uh, in April. April, as you know, in the nation is Autism Awareness Month. We were just saying at the break uh, that um, there are some reports that, that – uh, Bill Gates, um, you know, uh, arguably one of the smartest uh, uh, entrepreneurs in America. Um, And, uh, you know, certainly the richest (laughs) uh, may have been diagnosed or or, or may have the characteristics of, of Asperger's, which is a part of the spectrum of autism. Let's do this, Dr. Foster. Let's start to talk about intervention because, you know, what I'm seeing a lot now is that people are saying, Get to your care providers. Get to your pediatricians. Get to your doctors early. Why are we saying early?
2: Yeah, well, we're saying early because we know without a doubt that the earliest intervention possible will really uh, provide the best outcomes for for these kids who are diagnosed on the spectrum. And a lot of that has to do with the developing brain. You know, the the brain is still developing so rapidly in those toddler years that if we can really diagnose it and get the parents and family on board with, with with the diagnosis and begin some treatment, these kids will have the best outcomes possible for them. Wow,
1: yeah, so it's really important. Be paying attention to all of these things and get to your physicians early. Really important point. If you've got things that you aren't quite sure of, we're saying let's use modern technology. Let's use your mobile devices. Take a picture of it. Uh, 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 take some video footage. Do it multiple times so that you can have that available for your care provider, for your pediatrician, when you go see them, I think these are all great. Let's talk about the, you know, some of the early interventions. Now, are you are you referring kids on to mental health specialists when you get the diagnosis, or do you do things uh, there in the office?
2: Uh, no. Well, we are not referring them to mental health specialists. We're usually, um, you know, you have to keep in mind just that at the initial time of of maybe noticing that there is a. A a developmental difficulty with a child that um, it may not be autism. It may be um, simply a delay in speech. There is certainly um, there are a lot of speech delays in children, and um, not all of those children are then later diagnosed with autism. Okay. Um, And and likewise, there are a lot of children who may show some delays in some of the social emotional development, and they don't later go on to develop. Or to be diagnosed with autism. So I certainly don't want um, parents to be scared or to be panicked if their child is uh, displaying some delays. Most kids um, will appear at some point or another to have a delay in some area of development, whether it's for just a few weeks to uh, you know several months, and most um, then you know catch back up and are not. Uh,
1: diagnosed with autism right so don't freak out if your if your kids aren't perfectly adhering to the you know the chart that you put up on the wall Uh, you know talk to your care providers before you start to you know give your own child a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder so that's really important information
2: exactly but you know for for the kids who are um, diagnosed on the spectrum you have to keep in mind each child with autism is very very unique and so each autism intervention plan should be tailored to address their specific needs. Um, intervention usually will involve some type of behavioral treatment. Sometimes it can involve medicine if you have um, children on the spectrum who may have very violent uh, uh, tantrums, which is, you know, is it, it's, it's something else I would love to touch on because in the media. Um, it, People, adults as well as kids on the spectrum have often been portrayed as very violent, dangerous um, individuals, which is simply just not true at all. Yeah,
1: I've seen that, yeah. So is that just a a minority of the cases? Is that rare?
2: It's it's very rare. It's it's definitely a minority of the cases and it's really just something that Hollywood has chosen uh, as a good storyline and has has continued on with it. But, you know, uh, children and adults on the spectrum are, are not violent people uh, who should be feared, who are going to cause harm to others. But what I'm referring to um, uh, in terms of sometimes medicine for um, uh, uh, tantrums are, you know, if the tantrum or the um, behavior that the, the child is exhibiting can be dangerous to themselves. So if they are doing something where they get so wound up and worked up during a tantrum where they may injure themselves, then they probably be on a medicine that can help them to calm down um, with some of those behaviors that could could cause injury.
1: Yeah. Now, are, are these are you know when they when they need are do these kids need these medicines lifelong or is there some remission that can uh, occur with with therapies and counseling and treatment?
2: They may not need the medicines um, or the therapies or treatments lifelong, uh, especially if they are started early. So if they're started early and um, you know the kids start to really get to their best ability, then um, oftentimes they're reassessed, and they um, may be at a, a level where they no longer require some some of their earlier treatments. Um, the question of whether or not they can be cured from autism yeah. and they have such such successful behavioral treatment over a time period that they lose their diagnosis diagnosis of autism. Um, that's not quite the case. It's more so that they become very, you know, higher functioning, kind of adapted, well
1: adapted to, yeah. to be
2: their best, yeah, their best self.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, and 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 well, but you know, the idea that there can be a fair amount of recovery into the point where they are, you know, well functioning, you know, well, really well functioning as you know, preteens, teenagers, adults speaks to, you know, I go back here, speaks to what we think might be happening as a mechanism, not necessarily the cause, but the mechanism. And, you know, and some of the theories, and I'll just kind of read some of these that I've found in my research, are that there are, in the in the brain development very early on, that there are this excess amount of neurons, you know, nerve cells, <coughs> excuse me, excess amount of nerve cells in a certain pathway. There's over-connectivity. Uh, that means... You know where a normal brain would develop only a certain number of connections between different nerve cells, uh, people maybe in the spectrum, the autism spectrum may have overconnectivity overgrowth of neurons uh, over uh, uh, abundance of a certain kind of neuron and in a certain pathway and as you for example, start to intervene when you when you when you get a diagnosis, you can actually start to rewire the brain. The brain is this highly plastic very malleable thing. That's why we get to learn, right? That's why we get to unlearn because we can we can change the connectivity of the brain. So I think it's fascinating that in fact when we get people in early, again, the key, we can start to help them rewire if if you will some of those brain connections.
2: Oh, absolutely. And and that's just part of part of the reason why, you know, it's so important for early awareness and diagnosis. It's so important for these uh, these young children who are diagnosis being on the spectrum to start to receive that very structured, intense therapeutic, you know, activity um, at at the earliest time period possible, just so that we can ensure that they have the best outcome um, that they can have over time.
1: Yeah, yeah, this is very fascinating. It, it we still have a lot to learn, Dr. Foster, but I think that the the good news is what we just a- outlined that the earlier you come to the attention of a healthcare provider, your pediatrician, cetera, the sooner you can start the interventions that have heretofore been shown to really have some significant um, improvements and they can lead normal lives.
2: Absolutely. And, and we certainly know that many people with autism go on to live independent and very fulfilling lives. Um, and and definitely we, we should always keep in mind that all of these individuals deserve the opportunity to work productively to develop meaningful and fulfilling relationships every day and just to enjoy life as anyone else would yeah
1: yeah yeah and 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 and, and, and a stigma attached to this if there is one developing should be one of a condition that is um, that is manageable that is treatable I really I really like that message.
0: Don't go away. We'll be right back. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at DMontgomeryMD. Rethink your health. Stay informed at DMontgomeryMD on Facebook and Twitter.
1: Uh, you know, let me, let me ask you about your own personal uh, um, experience in the office, in the practice Um, particularly from a parental standpoint. um, How are the parents, what do you see of the parents when they come in with kids that may have these disorders?
2: Uh, Yeah, certainly. So, And again, this is an everyday thing that I see in my practice. This is, um, you know, with uh, most of the visits that I conduct during the day with, with the children. The parents of the toddlers and parents of infants who come in um, just for a routine well checkup, oftentimes have a lot of questions about development. Um, they want to ensure that their child is developing typically. They want to um, make sure that you know, things that they may have noticed in their child um, uh, is normal. They want reassurance. And there's a lot of anxiety associated with autism or uh, potentially with autism-related um, symptoms. Yeah. So they, they definitely are aware of this. It's at the forefront of their mind. And, and the parents come in with questions and oftentimes a lot of nervousness and anxiety. Yeah, I, so I bet,
1: I bet, prior to the diagnosis. And, 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 and parents who have children that carry a diagnosis. What about the, what about the kids that, that um, ultimately uh, get a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder? Are you seeing different things that are common in the parents? How are they coping?
2: Yeah, I think initially the parents who have just um, come to terms with this diagnosis and their children are very different than um, the very newly diagnosed families. So families that are newly diagnosed are really still trying to um, just navigate this whole new world of therapies and treatments and support and assistance and yeah. insurance issues. I yeah, mean, we yeah. haven't talked about that, but uh, a family with one child – on um, the spectrum, usually pays about sixty thousand to seventy five thousand dollars a year in terms of wow. uh, related to treatments and other type of therapies.
1: Out of their so, pocket or billed to uh, insurance?
2: Well, well, sometimes out of their pocket. It's not. Um, it's difficult um, sometimes to get full reimbursement or coverage for a lot of a lot of therapies that are are um, needed and that are more cutting edge for a lot of these these children.
1: Yeah, that's why but, we need to have shows like this so that people are more aware of it and that we can get absolutely. these insurers covering this condition because it's it's treatable. Absolutely. So, yeah. So yeah, you're, but you were... you
2: the the families who are coping with the newer diagnosis, it's like anything else. I mean, they they have to have a period of time to really mourn the loss of their um, their hopes and dreams of a you know, their their uh, child, you know, they have to come to terms with the fact that they may never, um, you know, be able to have a, what they um, previously anticipated, you know, type of relationship or experience with their child, yeah. depending on where they fall on the spectrum. But once they really get past that initial diagnosis, these are families and parents who really just get on the ball and get moving, yeah.
3: Yeah. and yeah. are very
2: motivated. In my experience, very motivated to do the absolute best that they can for their child. And they really, you know, become these loving, outgoing families that are not only um, doing the best that they can and and having every therapy available for their child, but they want to be advocates and they want to also be sources of inspiration and help to others struggling with a new diagnosis. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And because they ultimately come to the realization that, uh, you know, with the right kinds of love and support and interventions that, as we said before, there can be dramatic improvement. Um, so what about siblings? What about the, uh, the the brothers and sisters of children that are diagnosed with the autism spectrum that themselves do not carry uh, a diagnosis? Yeah, those... Um,
2: uh- those children usually have a really, really, really awesome relationship with their sibling who is on the spectrum. And it's oftentimes one of, uh, of protection and love.
3: Yeah. So
2: definitely, you know, um, the, you know, sometimes children who are on the spectrum who are very um, affected in terms of their, their communication may have a sibling that speaks for them or that right, right. Um, will anticipate their needs and will even, you know, tell us in the, in the office, hey, Dr. Foster, you know, um, Jimmy likes this type of sticker. I know he does, so can I get that sticker for him? Oh, because that's
1: great, ask. yeah, yeah, but, yeah.
2: You know, so definitely that. And you have to keep in mind, you know, children who are young at the time of diagnosis, if they have a sibling, in terms of the sibling's um, response to them, this is, who they know this yeah that's normal brother. yeah
1: that's that's that's, that's how they've
2: always been this that's is right.
1: typical yeah, in their right, home right.
2: so so there's no difference in how they view them or love them and they have you know just um the same close loving relationship as any other uh sibling uh, family
1: i love that i mean you know again we're tearing down stereotypes and stigma right i mean there is no difference between the love uh, in a family, no matter who, what level it is, whether it's the parent or the or the sibling, um, and any other, any child with a, a diagnosis on the autism spectrum compared to any right. other child. I mean, it's the same life, the same kind of love, the same kind of experience for them.
2: Right. But, you know, Dave, one thing I, I will say, I I just absolutely have, have really enjoyed and loved seeing some of the families that um, have really gotten, you know, uh, rolled up their sleeves and kind of um, gotten into this whole arena of, of the therapies and treatments and seeking out um, opportunities for the for their children um, to improve and watching them over time and seeing these kids initially in the office where we may have some very difficult exams you know a very difficult uh, two-year visit where the the child maybe is really refusing um, to to cooperate with any part of what I'm trying to do with them while I try to listen to their heart or check their ears. Right. And then I see them back a couple of years later, and it's, it's a very um, a very different picture. They found ways to cope with uh, things that they may not enjoy. Dave, are you hearing the baby in the background?
1: Yeah, that's okay. It's good. It's good. It's good.
2: Oh, <laughs> we okay.
1: want people to know that you're a normal person too. So,
2: <laughs> Okay. But yeah, it, it, one of the things I love the most is just seeing the progression of improvement over time um, with the children who have received that early intervention, who have received the early therapies and treatments. And, and watching these kids go from um, a, a two-year-old who really refuses to let me listen to their heart, to look in their ears, to really do any part of my, my physical exam during their checkup, to then seeing them later, as the a four-year-old who comes in and says hello to me and sits down uh, very nicely and lets me um, examine them in a very calm fashion. And afterwards says thank you and and continues on with their their um, their day.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: And, and that's truly truly attributable to not just the therapies and treatments, but just having that that loving, stable, committed family who um, is is just. So in love with that child that they are, are trying to do the absolute best that they can in terms of of, uh, of therapies for them. It's wonderful.
1: Yeah, I think that is so great. And thank you, Dr. First. I hear your own uh, uh, babies in the background, so we know that you've got to, yeah. you know, uh, attend to your family. And we really, really thank you for helping us understand mm-hmm. other families as a part of our family here at the Health Mastery Cafe. Dr. Allison Foster, thank you again for all of your time and your expertise here today.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Dave. It's always a pleasure, and I'm so glad that you chose this topic this month to to highlight and just bring more awareness to. It's been great.
1: You don't want to go away. There's plenty more of the Health Mastery Journeyers and their journey toward significant and lasting weight loss. Don't miss it.
4: The information you see, the inspiration you need.
1: Let's explore that inspiration here on the Health Mastery Cafe.
4: Tune in to the Health Mastery Cafe with Dr. Dave, Tuesdays at 12 p.m. on UBM Talk.
1: Nothing like this has ever been done before.
4: The Health Mastery Cafe. The difference between where you are
0: and where you see yourself. Let's tune in to Dr. Dave with the Health Mastery Journeyers.
1: Nikia has uh, lost about thirty pounds within about six months' time. Nikia has a new lease on life. She has decided that she is not going to quit this time, and she has said. That I'm going to work with you, Dr. Dave, and we are going to take the steps that are necessary to make this happen. She's not going back. She knows that quitting is not an option. In fact, we've got a number on that quitting, don't we? we got, we've got all kinds of monetary penalties and all that stuff. But in all seriousness, this is a testament to you, Nikki. And I'm so glad that you're a part of our, our Health Mastery Journeyers Guild, that you're helping all of those other people on the, in the guild to actually see that it can happen if you simply don't quit.
0: Next on the Health Mastery Cafe.
1: So this is a good situation out of what seems to not be a most ideal thing, um, right. but you've already uncovered some of the positive things that are going to come out of this thing. Can you can you yeah. tell us just for one second, I, I want you to tell me um, the question that I often ask people is, when do you think that the weight problem began? And as I mentioned on uh, you know, many speaking engagements and other places, that people don't realize that this is not a process that just happened three years ago. I very often get on first, uh, first answer, oh, it was like five years ago. It's like six years ago. When you think back, Nikia, to the time where you first started to See weight issues, or that you recall people talking about your weight. When was that for you? I know it was when
5: I was nine years old. I spent summer. Um, it was our first summer with our father after our parents.
1: Nine years old. Yes, yeah, nine. Wow. I know it was nine. And thinking
5: about that whole process of when you start um, illusion board last week with a friend. I know know for a fact if I even have pictures you can see me from like 8 years old and there's a big jump at 9 where you know I look at least maybe 15 pounds
1: Wow So at 9 years old in the summer you gained 15 pounds
5: Probably 10 to 15 Yeah My dad was like he wasn't a bad dad he was just trying to make the best out of us it really hard situation. He had two little girls. He he didn't cook. You know, he was a preacher and he had a lot of stuff he was doing. in his job, he was also a counselor on a army depot, so, so he had a, a really hectic schedule. So he did a lot of driving through and getting you know fast food, and then you know just to make us happy, he would maybe take us to get pizzas or whatever. It was just eat meat eat. And I'm from a country town, Central County, so then we go to different. Parishioner's house and they'd give us fried right. chicken, yeah, and then he you know buy all this candy that we weren't getting at home. He was a big soda drinker, so he had all these sodas that we got to have. This is like candy
1: going Oh my gosh. Right. You know? it's it's what you yeah. hadn't you you were you were forbidden to have soda uh, from having soda mm-hmm. when you were a kid, but at Dad's house you could have as much as you want.
5: Right. My mom's house. She a certain amount of water and, you know, if you got sick, she was making jello and some kind of special juice that she have. I mean, you just had a really strict regimen on your health. I mean, even with fish, she was big on certain fish that you had to eat. And, you know, even though I lost some of that weight when I got back home, it was always still a secret struggle with me and candy
3: and, you know, wanting other things that I didn't have any different with eating. Know being from the south, <laughs> that's readily available. <laughs> right. I mean,
1: yeah.
5: Home cooking in the south. I mean, so it is like making sure you have a fried, food, a carbohydrate, and a carbohydrate
1: mm-hmm. and then order. Uh huh. Uh huh. In that order. Okay. <laughs> right. Right, right. 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 You know, the interesting part that people may not know about is that, as it turns out, if you live in a cold climate. Your basal metabolic rate, the thing that we call metabolism, is actually higher. If you live in a warm climate, then it's going to be the opposite. If you live in, uh, you know, the south of the United States, where it's generally warmer over the course of a year, your basal metabolic rate is lower. It's because you're spending less time sort of regulating your body temperature, um, you know, in, in the way that you do when you're in a cold climate. So that has part to do with it, but it's certainly not the main reason for things. And let me ask you if you felt like you started to have, um, you know, were you teased or, or ridiculed or something from your friends that early on, or was it much later in your life? Mm, I
5: have, um, you know, you came in, so there was a little teasing. But she and I were so close that if anybody even looked like they were going to tease me, she probably would beat them
1: up. <laughs> <laughs> so she protected you from that for a while. So that, that didn't have anything to do with it.
5: Mm-mm, it didn't. Yeah. And I was real likable, I had a lot of friends. And so my friends never really mentioned my weight. And even my my parents were the ones that began to really get concerned because I got really sick at fifteen and almost died. So they 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 really you know, at fifteen their thought process of my weight changed. They began to say something other people didn't, my family did.
1: What, what happened at age 15 where you almost died? Do you remember what was going on?
5: I had a um, tumor that I had been born with. They didn't know it. And it was in, um, it was on my ovaries and, and uh, on the tube. And it got so big, it was probably about the size of a large grapefruit. Oh, wow. And when, right, when I turned 15, I became, I tried to become more acid. Know in exercising and all that kind of stuff, and I began to get really sick after each time. My mother was taking me to different doctors and all this kind of stuff. I don't, we never really figured out why you know activity would make me sick, but anyway, to make a long story short, it burst and poisoned me.
1: Oh, wow, yeah, well,
5: but that's in time.
1: Yeah. Needless to say, you fought through that. And if you can fight through something like that at the age of 15, then you can fight through anything. I really appreciate you coming on the Health Mastery Cafe with us. We're going to be coming back to you and talking to you a little bit more. I want the rest of everyone who's listening. I want the people out there that are listening um, to follow you and to get to know what's happening in your life as you continue through the rest of the summer. We'll touch base. And then at the end of the year to see just how well you're doing. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Take care.
0: and Twitter at DMontgomeryMD. Rethink your health. Stay informed at DMontgomeryMD on Facebook and Twitter. I really
5: focused in on you know, being healthy and visualizing the exercise you did today. I didn't really get a chance to say I feel it was so powerful because I took time doing this. I, I, you know, one of the things I thought was, you know, I want to lose so much weight and be so in this area that, you know, even one day I could be in essence, you know, describing the process and how it went, and, you know, how everybody can just this drank, That's man,
3: right. woman, boy.
0: The Health Mastery Cafe, rethinking what's at stake, rebranding health.
1: The Health Mastery Cafe with Dr. Dave is a production of DMMD Studios.